Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. I want to focus in on housing a little bit more. Danielle DiMartino Booth joining us now, Chief Executive and Director of Intelligence for Quill Intelligence LLC, uh, also a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. And uh, Danielle, before we go to the Fed meeting minutes, I want to talk a little bit about housing and what we've been seeing there because we got the disappointing housing starts yesterday. Today we get a report from Zillow saying that rents have declined for the first time since 2012. What do you make of this weakness? Well, I think it's a simple matter, matter of affordability at this point. Um, uh, Knight, uh, Black Knight put out an interesting report last week that showed that in, 2007, in, in 2017, the monthly mortgage payment for a household increased by 3%. And that, as we know, was in a time of very rapidly rising home prices. But because mortgage rates have ticked up so far this year, they're up 16%. And that's before we had this latest uptick. Okay, so where do you see us going from here? I think housing has, has, has peaked. I think housing has peaked and rolled over. Um, I'm a good friend with David Rosenberg, and, and he and I were early on in calling the last peak in housing. And, you know, if you look across the spectrum, the hottest, hottest markets like San Jose, San Francisco, um, actually eight of the top ten uh, markets um, um, in terms of losing home prices, falling home prices last month were on the West Coast. And these are usually your leading indicators when, you're, when your hottest markets start to see home price declines. And that's exactly what we've seen. Price leads demand, and we're obviously seeing a steep fall off in demand, especially if you looked at those uh, MBA purchase applications for yesterday morning. We've gone net-net year over year, 8% down in terms of purchase applications. That's a 20-month low. Danielle, speak about the automobile industry. Is that another industry group that you believe has peaked in terms of sales? What a mess. Yes, and it's peaked so very quickly. For some time now, uh, the used car business has really been holding up consumption, and it's been holding up the entire auto industry because people were able to get a relative bargain because over half of the cars coming off lease in 2018 were SUVs. So you can go in and get something for basically half the price. Uh, but the inventories have shot up on used cars. The inventories are going up very rapidly for new cars. And I think that households have hit their pain threshold with the average car, uh, car price hitting record levels. And the, the same was the case with used car. Again, those prices are turning as well. And if you look at housing and autos in the aggregate, they always lead the economy into recovery and into recession. Here's what I'm struggling with. I'm trying to uh, square this idea of a slowing housing market, a slowing auto market, the idea that households in America aren't willing to shell out for a car, don't want to incur the extra debt, at the same time that small business and consumer confidence is soaring through the roof to record highs. The leading economic indicators that just came out show ongoing strength that seems to be accelerating going forward. I don't get the disconnect here. Can you try to help me with that? Yeah, no, it's, it is, uh, there are definitely cross currents, uh, in, in the economic data right now. A lot of things don't make sense. Um, but if you actually look at the latest University of Michigan confidence survey, home buying conditions and auto buying conditions have crashed to the lowest level together since the early 1980s. 
I mean, we've already shot well past the prior cycle in terms of how households perceive buying conditions for automobiles and homes. And I think part of the problem is, yes, wages have picked up off the floor. If you look at average hourly earnings, they're up 2.8%. That's great. But that can in no way offset the 16% increase that I just mentioned in the average monthly mortgage payment so far this year. You just can't, you can't square the circle. Well, Danielle, does that mean, in your opinion, that investors ought to panic now and avoid the rush later on? Well, I, I think that investors should be very uh, weary of the fact that the Fed is intent on, on continuing to raise interest rates. Of course, we're seeing a cycle high today in the two years, so I think those Fed meeting minutes are being interpreted, uh, right, rightly so, as being hawkish, because so many of the prior doves are saying that it's appropriate to continue raising beyond the neutral rate, people like Lael Brainerd, Charlie Evans. Um, so I, I think that investors should be paying very close attention. I mean, when, when companies like Lennar put Rialto Capital, its real estate lending group, up for sale, when Goldman Sachs steps back from its direct lending to consumers, these are all, again, they're just they're, they're red flags that are, be ra- that, that are being raised that maybe the smart money is trying to get out now. So just uh, you mentioned the Fed, uh, Fed meeting minutes that we got yesterday, and I'm looking right now at Fed funds futures uh, for December, and they are absolutely getting slammed. In other words, people are quickly pricing in an extra hike later this year. What was it in the meeting minutes that you think gave traders such confidence that this was a hawkish Fed? Well, again, um, I, I'll, I'll go back to the idea of the Fed being comfortable with going beyond neutral, the knowledge that Jay Powell believes that neutral is 3%, and therefore you are implying one, two, three, four, five more interest rate increases before the Fed feels that it's appropriate to step back and, and pause. And I think that going into the minutes, I think that there was a hope uh, that there was going to be a signal that the Fed would potentially pause in December and revisit come March. But again, I, I think investors have to be, you know, there's only a 6% probability that the Fed goes in January. But if Jay Powell feels like he needs to get into this, then I think he'll show the markets that he's scheduled press conferences after every single FOMC meeting for a reason. So I'll be paying very close attention to what he has to say at the press conference uh, in December. Thanks very much for being with us, Danielle DiMartino Booth, Chief Executive, Director of Intelligence for Quill Intelligence. She's also a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. We're getting some conflicting messages out of Washington, D.C. On one hand, we just heard from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo saying that we want to give uh, Saudi Arabia a couple more days to conduct a full investigation, and then we'll take it from there in order to determine what to do over the uh, the missing journalist who wrote for the Washington Post. And now we're getting news. Uh, the Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, uh, Mnuchin has withdrawn from the Saudi Arabian conference that was heralded as a momentous uh, period for the nation with respect respect to attracting international investments. Joining us now to try to parse through what this means for the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia is Dr. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting and author of Saudi Inc., uh, joining us by phone. Uh, Dr. Wald, thank you so much for being here. So let's just start with what is the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and how much do both sides have to lose here? I would 
I would uh, describe the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States as one of strategic partnership. I wouldn't go so far to say as the two countries are allies, uh, but they are strategic partners. And right now, I think the relationship is rather lopsided in favor of the United States, actually. Uh, unlike, in as uh, was the case in 1973, the United States is not reliant on Saudi oil. It is still an, a component of of the makeup of the U.S., uh, all of the oil that the U.S. imports, but it's not an especially significant one. And I think that that really shifts the relationship. Not only that, but Saudi Arabia is trying to attract foreign business, in particular American businesses, to come to the kingdom to really jumpstart their non-oil economy. So I think this gives us a, quite a bit of leverage in terms of the relationship. Why is the United States and Saudi Arabia, why is that relationship described as so strategic by administration officials? What does the United States get from Saudi Arabia other than around, what, 800,000 barrels of oil? Well, we we do get uh, strategic uh, advantages in terms of the Middle East. Uh, Saudi Arabia does support U.S. efforts uh, against Iran, and they can be or they can play an important stabilizing role. I think that um, we've been hearing a lot about how important it is to use Saudi Arabia as a counterweight to Iran, and I can definitely see that that would be an important role uh, going forward. But, but hang on, hang on one second, Dr. Wall. Is it possible? though that in, in fact you described it earlier you said the United States has the greater leverage here is it possible that Saudi Arabia itself will become destabilized aren't they involved in a civil war in Yemen well, they are, and that is a big issue here because the Saudis see themselves as kind of holding back these uh, Iranian-backed forces in Yemen. But I think we need to ask the question of, well, just how good a job are they actually doing in this? And is this war really in America's strategic interests? It's becoming a, a political uh, nightmare uh, in some senses because um, politicians are really questioning whether the U.S. should even be supplying the Saudis with the weapons to continue to conduct a war that doesn't seem to have any hope of succeeding. So, Dr. Wald, I want to shift back to the news that we got this morning with respect to Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin pulling out of this forum, which was supposed to bring in American and other international business to Saudi Arabia that they, in a way that they would like. And meanwhile, on the flip side, Mike Pompeo saying, give him the benefit of the doubt for now, not guilty and you know, not guilty until proven so. Uh, so what's your perspective? Why are we getting conflicting messages, uh, especially at a time when even Republican leaders are coming out and saying, this smells bad. Well, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing companies and now uh, this, the uh, Secretary of uh, Treasury take a symbolic stance saying, look, this is an issue. This is a huge public relations issue, and we're making a statement by not showing up ourselves. However, just because the executives aren't going doesn't mean, or the top executives, doesn't mean they're not sending other people to this conference. I know that some of the high-profile CEO pullouts, uh, are they're, they're still sending uh, lower-level executives to the conference. So I think it's, it's mainly symbolic in that sense. And I do think what uh, Pompeo is saying is that we're going to hold off on any um, potential um, uh, retributions or any uh, targeted sanctions. So I don't think that they're giving the Saudis a free pass, but 
they do want to at least see if they can find out what happened to this man and then determine what measures might be appropriate. With Turkey as a NATO ally of the United States, doesn't it present a quandary for the administration to believe either what the Turkish government says or what the Saudi Arabian government says? And this is this is part of this huge conundrum, which is who's believable, who can we trust uh, as credible. I think that there's been there's been a lot of of statements coming out of the Turkish media, possibly pushed by the Turkish government, which don't really add up. And uh, the Saudis are not always the most credible when it comes to um, being transparent. They're not very transparent about what goes on within their kingdom, for sure. So I don't think we can necessarily count on them to be transparent. So it would be very interesting to see what they do come up with and how credible or not that is. Well, and I just, I guess that if things stay the way they are, how big of a liability is this for businesses in Saudi Arabia, including ones that you speak with? I think that it could potentially be a big liability, particularly the public relations aspect. And I don't see that for for companies, it's such a huge, uh, necessarily a part of their business. They could pull out and, you know, go find plenty of business elsewhere. But for Saudi Arabia, that could present a problem if a lot of American businesses just suddenly pick up and leave as a result of the terrible PR or as a result even of some American uh, actions against Saudi Arabia. I think it would be much worse for Saudi Arabia as a country than it would be for the businesses uh, that, that do work there. Have you formed an opinion as to what happened to Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul? You know, every time I think I have formed an opinion, then more information comes out that then makes me question it. So I, um, I really can't say at this point what did or did not go on there. All right. Well, um, I guess this is going to be an unfold. Is there anything that we should be paying attention to just briefly that we not mentioning as far as the U.S.-Saudi Arabia relationship? I think we should be paying attention to uh, what's going on um, within the administration. I think that they're probably trying to work out what the possible set of responses could be. Um, There's definitely a tension between these military deals and and whatnot. But I do think that we are potentially coming to a place where the United States may have leverage to be able to put some pressure on Saudi Arabia to to maybe make some changes in the kinds of things that are most bothersome to us, like these human rights violations, political... We've got to leave leave it there. Dr. Ellen Wald is the president of Transversal Consulting and the author of Saudi Inc. All right, let's talk about active management when it comes to equities. Invesco is putting $5.7 billion behind active management as it acquires Oppenheimer funds. And here to tell us more about it is Peggy Collins, U.S. investing team leader here at Bloomberg. Peggy, this is a pretty big deal, isn't it? It is. It's a really big deal for two main reasons. One, because Oppenheimer Funds is this company that's been around for decades. It's known as a stock and bond picking firm. And they've been owned in the last several years by a big insurer. Mass Mutual. Exactly, called Mass Mutual. And today the deal was 
it was a big deal, valued at about $5.7 billion, where Invesco, which is the fourth largest provider of ETF products, so passive, not the active type strategies that Oppenheimer has, is the one that bought it. So it was, it was, it is a big deal because essentially what they're saying is we're making a bet that active management is not dead. So is that the bet or is the bet that if you consolidate enough assets, it doesn't matter how much you have in active management because you can just collect the fees on passive funds? In other words, is this just an economies of scale issue? I think it is in part, but I do think that what firms are starting to realize, or at least the bet that they're making, is you not only need scale, but you need something other than low-fee index funds and ETFs. Why? Because you need to make revenue somehow. So if you can pe bring people into the company or into your products via low-cost or even free funds, like we saw Fidelity announce in August, then you can potentially sell them something more expensive, like your international funds. I say international because Oppenheimer funds is known for some of its emerging market strategies, international strategies, which do tend to charge higher fees. And just to give the numbers here, Oppenheimer funds has about 240, $250 billion worth right. of assets. You add that to what Invesco already has, and what are we at, a trillion four? 1.2 trillion. 1 .2. Close, I beg Kim. your pardon, right. Nicely done. Right, well, these days, you know, a billion here, a billion there. Right, so is this uh, also an admission that the revenue uh, capitalization for investments is is worth paying attention to because Oppenheimer has a variety of, of funds that are not so much weighted based on a company's market cap, but they're weighted on the revenue performance of a company. That's right. And they're also, they do have some smart beta type strategies. So they're, they're betting on, again, like making a different mix of selection, whether it be for emerging market stocks with a lot of managers spend a lot of time on, or in terms of creating some of these smart beta ETFs where you use different things than market cap to follow them. So I think it's interesting, but I do think on the revenue point and to Lisa's point, when you have more scale, even if you have investors buying low fee products, that's rev that's a lot of revenue on low fee, which helps you. So we're really seeing a barbelling in the industry, a squeezing out of the middle between those who are managing over a trillion assets and those who are really, really niche players. And the middle is getting squeezed out. Is there anything we can infer from the price tag here? I think it's a question mark. I'm not sure if we know yet what, how much we can infer. The stock, the stock is doing well. Invesco's shares are up this morning about 3.7% so far. So the market is reacting pretty well to it. Meaning that probably Invesco got a little bit of a deal in the market's eyes. Well, it's interesting because when we first reported the, the potential for the deal back in September, a lot of analysts were saying, whoa, that sounds like a lot of money to pay for, for an asset manager today. We've seen asset manager stocks really struggle over the past year in part because of this fee compression, but the market seems to rea be reacting pretty well today to it. So we'll see if they're really able to cut some costs, make some cost savings out of it, and then continue to generate more revenue with the bigger scale. And and just to be clear, there the deal involves preferred shares, right? I mean, this is preferred and common stock of Invesco to pay for the deal. I definitely had to get my calculator out this morning before 7 a.m., <laughs> which was a little rough around the edges, but yes. <laughs> because this then means that Mass Mutual, by getting stock, ends up owning 15% 
of Invesco. That's right. They're they're ending up as a big shareholder, 15.5%. And yes, it was a combo deal of about $4 billion in preferred shares and then $81.9 million in common shares, which based on the price yesterday brings you of Invesco, yesterday, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, yesterday brings you to about $5.7 billion. Peggy Collins, thank you so much for being with us. I'm sure this will not be the last time that we talk about consolidation in the asset management sector. As many predict, there is much more to come. Peggy Collins is U.S. investing team leader and uh, extraordinary person all around. The U.S. Treasury Department has stopped short of declaring China a currency manipulator. This as part of its semi-annual report on foreign exchange rates. Here to tell us more, Stephen Englander, global head of G10 FX Research and North American Macro Strategy for Standard Charter Bank. He is also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Stephen Englander, thanks very much for being with us. Does it matter that the U.S. Treasury has not accused China of currency manipulation when President Donald Trump seems to be in a contradictory position by saying that the Chinese have been gaming the value of the Chinese currency, the yuan, in order to gain an advantage in trade? Well, you know, I I think the U.S. is in a difficult situation, and certainly um, any country that's not on the list can, you know, make a case that they've been certified innocent of currency manipulation. Um, and, and actually, the language in the report, you know, with respect to China and a couple of the other countries was was not, um, well, it was very matter of fact and, 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 you know, quite accurate in terms of saying that it doesn't look like they've been doing much in the market. Um, you know, the, but the, the thing is, the currency manipulation law itself, uh, it's a very dated law. Um, It comes from a period of time when um, modest threats of sanctions from the U.S. um, would have a big impact on what other countries were doing. And, you know, the 2015 law, which was the the, the son of the 1988 law, had these three criteria, which are are actually quite hard to meet, and no country met it. So it would have been hard to actually come out and say, look, by our standards, we, you know, they're manipulating. Yeah. Um, but the, the actual trade dispute has gone so far beyond, you know, what this law was meant to deal with that it, it, the, the finding is not very relevant. Okay, so the finding may not be relevant, but the market reaction is, and a lot of people are attributing the sell-off in the UN uh, to this ruling that basically uh, traders are betting that China will allow its currency to devalue more given the fact that the U.S. has not labeled it a currency manipulator are traders right um well i i, I think you know I, I think the seven and then you know the, the sort of hard red line of, of seven uh was always more in in traders minds than than anywhere else just to be clear uh, that means seven yuan per dollar and currently we're exactly. at 6.95 yuan per dollar carry on yeah and, and, and you know the, I, I think it it's genuinely the case that the you know the chinese want their currency to be stable but you know again it doesn't mean in all times in all places and under all circumstances um but the i, I think it's a stretch to say that not being named a manipulator uh changes their decision you know parameters uh, to any significant degree i mean um, I, I think it, all things being equal the u.s would have just as soon not had to issue this report uh because it, it 
it was it's clear it doesn't do them much good um and it's 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 dated as a as a as a tool for trade negotiations or currency negotiations Stephen Englander you mentioned that there are other countries mentioned in the report for example uh the euro appearing undervalued and germany being called out yes and and the problem with calling out germany is that they don't have a currency um you know that they're subject to you know their currency moves subject to what the the ecb decides um but surely think, the us treasury knows that well they know that but that's kind of not you know not the way the law is written right so is this a political uh, document at this point you know, I, I'd say it's more an anachronism. It, it dates back from a period where this sort of pressure would be enough to get cur- you know certain countries or currencies to change their policies. But the and, you know, I'd say that the tone of negotiations has become um, so much more intense yeah. that this doesn't contribute much. Um, what you do see, and, and again, the the they're very professional people at the Treasury, what they're saying is, look, it, it would be better, in our view, if uh, domestic demand was stronger in Europe, if they were more aggressive in pushing a growth agenda, and that would push up the rates, and that would sort of automatically um, appreciate their currency or, or put upward pressure on the currency. Yeah. So they, 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 they write it carefully. So, Steve, just real quick here, I'm just wondering, uh, before we let you go, the dollar, it is strengthening for a second day. I'm just wondering, do you think this will continue into the year end? Um, Look, I I think the dollar is going to have difficulty. I think that the um, deficits are already weighing on the dollar because we we know there's a reckoning as soon as the business cycle begins to slow. And the market seems to be looking beyond 2019 when we know that the Fed is going to be hiking. They're looking to what the Fed's going to be doing in 2020, 2021. And there the expectation is the ECB will be hiking and the Fed will be flat. So that's preventing the dollar from moving as far as it normally would on, on this kind of rate move. Thank you so much for being with us, Steve Englander, Global Head of G10 FX Research North America Strategy for Standard Chartered Bank, as well as a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.